Hello, simpletons. Welcome to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Today, you are in for a treat. Ryan and I just got back from the road. We were in Denver and Phoenix and Salt Lake City and San Antonio and Houston and Dallas and Nashville and Orlando and Atlanta. And we're headed to 11 other cities. If you want to join us on the road, you can do that. You can find all the details to all 20 cities on our tour page. Or if you can't join us on the road, our Patreon true fans and VIPs get access to all 20 events as they are released on Patreon. But no matter what level of support you're at, you get to hear this week's maximal episode from one of our favorite events. It's the Salt Lake City event where we really went deep. So this week, we want you to enjoy one of our favorite experiences, the live event. Yes, we really enjoy making films, writing books, writing for the blog, and of course, recording podcasts. But this immersive experience, the live events, there's nothing else like it. Enjoy this live event from Salt Lake City, Utah. The Minimalists. (laughs) Now, sometimes people avoid minimalism because the word itself sounds a little too extreme. Afraid of stepping outside of cultural boundaries, these people will sidestep simplifying their lives because they don't want the label minimalist. So, if minimalism, if it sounds too radical to you, that's okay. You can just relabel your flavor of simplification. Just pick your ism. Intentionalism, enoughism, selectivism, essentialism, curationism, practicalism, living within your means-ism. It doesn't matter what you call it. Minimalism is the thing that gets us past the thing so we can make room for life's most important things, which aren't things at all. That's the hard part, figuring out what are those important things. So what are they? Well, that's what Josh and I are here to help you all uncover tonight. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the other half of the minimalists, Joshua Fields Milburn. Wow, you came. All this uncertainty going on right now. I'm so grateful you're here. Welcome to the Love People Use Things Tour. You know, um, Ryan and I, we wrote a book. And it just came out. It's called Love People Use Things. I'm going to read from it in a bit. See, Ryan finishes each chapter with, um, with some mentorly advice, some questions to ask, some things to contemplate, some do's and don'ts. And the rest of the book is just me sort of pontificating. So um, that's what we're going to do tonight. So, so the book itself is um, we wanted to write a relationship book. But then we learned that um, we'd screwed up all of our relationships in our 20s. And we were trying to figure out why and how, what the hell happened. And so mm, we, um, we started exploring. And we realized that, oh, this isn't a relationship book. It's about all these different relationships in our lives. We have a relationship with our stuff. And since we're the minimalists, that's kind of where we start, right? With the stuff. But then it goes way beyond the stuff. Our relationship with our values, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with the truth, our relationship with our money, and um, ultimately, our relationship with people. So I figured tonight we would start with the stuff 
and then we'll, we'll move on from there. All right, this is from Relationship One Stuff. I first met Jason and Jennifer Kirkendall in the post-show hug line at one of the Minimalists' live events. Side note, do you remember when we could hug people? Oh, that was so nice. They are free and non-transferable. You've been to a previous event before. Thank you. Yeah, so um, it's my favorite part of the events, and because of certain restrictions, we're not supposed to do it right now, so we owe each of you a hug. The voucher is not transferable. Return the text. I first met Jason and Jennifer Kirkendall in the post-show hug line at one of the Minimalist Live events. They told me that when they married at age 24, they were both filled with hope for the future. Before they knew it, they were living the American dream. Four kids. Um, in Utah, that's eight kids. <laughs> Two dogs, a cat, and a home just outside Minneapolis. <laughs> Jason worked for a large insurance company. Jennifer was a stay-at-home mom. In time, however, their dream slowly devolved into a nightmare. The house that was once their dream home no longer fit their ever-expanding lifestyle, so they found a bigger home in a distant suburb, taking on the burden of a larger 30-year mortgage and a longer commute. The expansion didn't stop with their home. To keep up with appearances, they bought new cars every few years and outfitted their walk-in closets with designer clothes. To alleviate their anxiety, they shopped at the Mall of America on the weekends. What a metaphor. You know, there's actually a roller coaster in the Mall of America, which I suppose is another metaphor. Consumerism does some strange things to us, doesn't it? Return the text. They shopped at the Mall of America on the weekends. They ate too much junk food, watched too much junk TV, and distracted themselves with too much junk on the Internet, exchanging a meaningful life for ephemera. And yet, too much wasn't enough. Before they were 35... Jason and Jennifer were drowning in problems. Most serious were their money troubles. Even with overtime pay, Jason's 50-hour work weeks no longer kept them afloat. So Jennifer sought a part-time job to help keep the bill collectors at bay. Credit cards, car payments, college loans, private school tuition, house payments. But the money problems were only the top layer covering a labyrinth of deeper issues. Their sex life was non-existent. Their careers were unfulfilling. They hid purchases from each other. <laughs> Just seeing if it resonates. <laughs> they lied to each other about their spending. They ignored their creative desires. They took each other for granted. They grew petty and resentful. They were ashamed of who they'd become. A decade after their nuptials, they were anxious, overwhelmed, and stressed because they'd lost sight of their ideal vision. They'd squandered their most precious resources, time, energy, and attention on fruitless miscellanea. 
The exuberant, hopeful 24-year-olds who'd exchanged vows were so far in the rear view that they were completely out of view. Well, the only way to mask their discontent was to hop back on the hedonic treadmill, spending money they didn't have to buy things they didn't need to impress people they didn't like. They worshipped at the altar of consumerism, and stuff had become their new god. Then, on Christmas morning in 2016, they discovered a fresh perspective. With the carpet under the Christmas tree bare from the morning's unwrapping, Jennifer switched on Netflix like she had hundreds of times before and stumbled across a movie called Minimalism. Throughout the Matt Diavella-directed film about Ryan's and my journey, she found herself contrasting the simple lives on the screen with the heaps of wrapping paper, empty boxes, and untouched gifts strewn across her living room floor. Not even four hours had gone by, and her kids were already bored by half their new toys. And the obligatory gift that Jason had purchased for her with their credit card... It was back in its box, already tucked away in their closet, uninteresting and unused, like most of the things they owned. Jennifer thought back to her college days. Her life was so simple then. When did everything get so complex? Let's pause on that for a second. So we'll talk about complex in a minute, but it's it's great. This is our, our 10th tour in 11 years. And I can't tell you how many times people come up to us after events and those former post-show hug lines and um, say, you know, they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s. I'm thinking back to the happiest time in my life. It's when everything I own could fit in my car. And I see retirees that are at our events. They're like, I'm getting rid of everything. I just downsized. Everything I own now can fit in my car. I'm happier than I can ever remember. Yeah. Now, I'm not prescribing this, by the way. Um, My couch wouldn't fit in my car. (laughs) But I think there's something fascinating here about the things we think we want and what they really do to us and the ways they, they weigh us down. So the way they make our lives so complex. Return to text. When did everything get so complex? The Latin root of the word complex is complect, which means to interweave two or more things together. Jason and Jennifer had interwoven so many unnecessary possessions, distractions, and obligations into their daily lives that they were no longer able to distinguish the junk from the essentials. Uh, in the book, we have these, these 16 rules for living with less, and, and one of them is um, the no-junk rule. And it basically goes like this. Everything you own can fit in one of three piles. It's either essential, it's non-essential, or it's junk. We all have the same essentials, basically. Clothes, food, shelter, education, vocation, transportation, other things. But then there are these non-essentials. These are the things that add value to our lives. So Ryan and I aren't the deprivationists were the minimalists, right? And so I remember this event we had, this guy came up to to Ryan afterward and he said, hey, you know, 
My wife brought me here, and I just don't get it. It seems like you guys didn't give up anything important. Ryan looked at him and he goes, yeah, that's right. And um, that's the thing. It's actually the weird paradox of minimalism. The things that I own add way more value to my life than if they were watered down by hundreds of thousands of useless trinkets that sort of get in the way, which is actually that third pile. That's the junk. Those are the things that masquerade as value-adding, but they actually get in the way. They couldn't distinguish the junk from the essentials. The opposite of complexity is simplicity. The word simple shares a Latin root with the word simplex, which means having only one part. So when we talk about simplifying, what we're really talking about is uncomplexing our lives, removing that which is no longer serving the complex structures we've created, because anything that's too complex gets tangled. Jennifer knew that if they were going to be happy again, if their family was going to reconnect with what was important, a change was critical. They needed to simplify, but she was unsure where to start. So she turned to the online world. The internet exposed Jennifer to a plethora of people who had simplified their lives with minimalism. She found dozens of inspiring stories scattered across the web. Although all these people led considerably different lives, married parents, childless singles, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, she noticed they all shared at least two things in common. First, they were living deliberate, meaningful lives. They were passionate and purpose-driven, and they seemed much richer than any of the so-called rich people she'd encountered. And second, they all attributed their meaningful lives to this thing called minimalism. And then, of course, there was the minimalist story, which Jennifer had seen in our documentary. At the time, Ryan and I were two seemingly normal 35-year-olds like Jason and Jennifer from the Midwest, ditto, who had achieved the American dream, double ditto, and then walked away from our overindulgent lifestyles to pursue something more meaningful. After falling down the rabbit hole, Jennifer was excited to clear the clutter. Jason, on the other hand, was skeptical. But the evidence was overwhelming, and deep down he knew they had and deep down he knew they had to do something to get back on track. Fueled by the excitement and fear of letting go, they rented a dumpster and placed it next to their overstuffed house. By the way, I don't recommend this either. This is what they I don't know what where they got the idea from, but um it wasn't us. During the New Year's weekend, they began chucking everything they hadn't used in the last year. Clothes, cosmetics, toys, books, DVDs, electronics, utensils, plates, cups, mugs, pet accessories, tools, furniture, exercise equipment. Isn't that fa fascinating that our pets have become hoarders because of us? The average American cat owns 300 toys but plays with 12 daily. Pet accessories, tools, furniture, exercise equipment, even a ping pong table. Imagine this dumpster on the side of their house. And then there's just this ping pong table. They were like, screw it. Anything that wasn't bolted down was subject to dismissal. They let go aggressively. Within a week, their house felt different. The physical mess was dissipating. The visual clutter was reduced. The echo in their home was new. Was that the sound of simplicity? As 2017 came to a close, as January 2017, rather, came to a close, Jason and Jennifer were nearly finished 
excising their home of its excess. Within a week, the dumpster would be gone and years of unintentional hoarding would be removed from their lives forever. They were making significant progress. Their closets and basement and garage were organized. Side note there. Do you know the easiest way to organize your stuff is to just get rid of most of it? They were making significant progress. Their closet and basement and garage were organized. Their remaining furniture had a function. Their things were in order. They could breathe better. They laughed more. They were more agreeable. They worked together as a family. Together, everything they owned served a purpose, and everything else was out of the way. Their house was a home again. A rush of calm overtook them as they recognized their priorities were finally at the forefront of their lives. Then, the unexpected. If you want to hear the rest of that, uh, you just have to pick up the book. (laughs) We have uh, the King's English Bookstore, by, by the way. It's a great local bookshop. They're selling books out there. We've got some autographs, copies for you. But... No, just kidding. We're going to finish it here. You don't actually have to buy a book. (laughs) Don't feel compelled to. Although if you want to support a local indie bookshop, they are the ones to support, as opposed to, you know, one-click buying somewhere. (laughs) Hmm. Then the unexpected. The day before its scheduled retrieval, their dumpster caught fire. No one knows exactly how it happened, but while Jason and Jennifer were at work that Tuesday... Something ignited the contents of the now overflowing dumpster, and by the time they returned from work, their house had burned to the ground, including everything they wanted to keep. Fortunately, their kids had been at school during the conflagration, and all three pets had escaped through the doggy door at the back of the house. Well, they think all three escaped. They never found the cat. Oh, but he's on a farm somewhere, right? There's a lot of farms in Minnesota. You really just care about the dogs anyway, right? They're fine. But everything else was gone. Everything. Every thing. With tears in their eyes, Jason and Jennifer held their children and stared blankly at the smoldering rubble. How could this happen? After years of hard work, achieving, and accumulation, they had nothing to show for it. Nothing. No thing. It was terrifying. It was depressing. It was freeing. The past month had been an exercise in letting go. And at this moment, they realized they were capable of letting go of anything, Any thing. Their kids were safe, their family was intact, and their relationship was considerably better than it was a month ago. Their future was whatever they wanted to make it. For the first time in their adult lives, they, were tethered to, they weren't tethered to a lifestyle and the possessions and expectations that had constrained them until now. They had uncomplected their weave as their complexities went up in smoke literally. They were thrust into the simple life by way of a dumpster fire. 
A month before, Jason and Jennifer would have been devastated by this setback. But with their new perspective, they didn't see it as a setback. It was an inconvenient push forward. Now, with everything out of the way, their only question was, what are we going to do with our newfound freedom? Thanks. This episode of The Minimalist is brought to you by nobody, because... Oh, yes. Yes. Well, welcome, Minimizers, to The Minimalist Podcast. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are The Minimalists. Wow. We're here in oh, Salt Lake City! Yeah! Oh, you guys. I, I got to be honest with you. So, so, well, a few things. One is I accidentally wore these pants that have a hole in the crotch. <laughs> and it's the only pair of pants I have on. So I have two pairs of pants, and, and this is the only one I brought with me. So thankfully, you, Ryan and I share a pair of underwear, and I'm actually wearing the pair today. Thank Whew. God. <laughs> Here's my other confession for you, though. Legitimately, Salt Lake City is my favorite city in the country. <laughs> now, and I would live here if you didn't have winter. I'm dead serious. I would totally live here. Now, I've been a big fan of the Utah Jazz since I was a little kid, which sounds really weird from this kid from, from Dayton, Ohio. Why did he grow up liking the Utah Jazz? Well, my brother's black, so we used to pretend we were Stockton and Malone. <laughs> Whenever we played basketball. And that's really the only reason. And it has stuck ever since. <laughs> but also, you have, you're, you're so blessed to have something that you probably don't even realize you have. You, you saw Nate and Scott up here earlier. And they're sort of half of this band that they formed to make the soundtracks to both of our films. It's this band called VVE or We. There's actually an argument between the members of the band itself, whether it's called We or VVE. So you can call it whatever you want, I guess. But, um, but thanks to Nate, I mean, he, he won't take credit for this, but you have what is legitimately the best independent music scene in the country here in, in Utah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, when Ryan and I lived in Montana, I would all the time make the eight-hour drive down here just to go to a concert and then drive back sometimes the same night. Um, and you're, you're just really fortunate. I mean, it's not, it's just, the, you already know this. It's the most beautiful place there is and then also some of the most amazing people on earth. I, I've, I'm stalling long enough now. We have a microphone here if anyone wants to approach it. Now, I could keep going on about how much I love Salt Lake City, but it looks like we have... Oh. Some questions here. And I was hoping we'd talk about the John Stockton statue, but maybe another time. Oh, yeah. We, I mean, every, <laughs> I, Josh every, treats it like a Buddhist statue. He goes there every time and he puts <laughs> a little coin on the. I'm just kidding. He does not do that. <laughs> yeah, what else? I have really long underwear. Is that a thing? I mean, I, I've even dated a few Mormon girls. Yeah. Not at the same time. <laughs> Although I'm open to that as well. It uh, looks like we have some questions here. Howdy, what's your name? Hi. Hi. My name is Yulia. Hey, Yulia. Yes, Yulia. Hi. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Nice 
nice to meet you. What's on your mind? Um, well, I just don't have a question, but I have a confession to make. Uh, I'll, I'll stand right? my back to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love when these events just turn into confessions. It's really great. <laughs> I throw out my kids' toys all the time. Mm. I have five kids, and I do have an internal struggle with every time I do it. But, you know, it just I talk to them quite often, but I don't think they can comprehend quite well about what I'm trying to say, and they're not willing to let it go. And at the same time, I'm the parent, and I have to make some choices for them. Mm -hmm. And also, it's my house as well. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. and that's the internal struggle I have. Maybe you have some kind of tips of... Yeah, let's talk about yeah. it. You mean your like four-year-old can't understand the idea of, of an opportunity cost? <laughs> <laughs> no, so they what, actually let me, understand I, I tried well. to do this to my daughter, Ella, when she was three. I was trying to explain uh, delayed gratification to her. <laughs> and one time she just looked at her mom. She goes, I don't understand what he's saying. <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, do, you, like, do you chew up their food and spit it into their mouth? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and the reason I don't do that with my daughter either is because sometimes she has to learn how to do some things on her own. And um, by getting rid of her stuff for her, by getting rid of anyone's stuff for them, which, by the way, if you uh, go home and get rid of your partner's stuff, that's called theft. So um, I know some of you were dragged here tonight, like, who the hell are these guys? And, um, we're not encouraging you to get rid of other people's stuff. In fact, uh, I would discourage that because it will make the relationship much more tense. And I think the same thing is actually true with our children. Our friend Rob Bell says that we're always teaching our children. Sometimes it's with words. And so, of course, you could tell them about um, what were you to opportunity costs and, 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 and delayed gratification and, and, and telling them that even when they're at an age to understand it, they only understand it intellectually. They don't understand it in, in, in their heart, in their viscera, right? And so I tell you, I've, I've had two really proud moments as a father in um, the last eight years. Not a great batting average. Um, but I remember one, when Ella was five, and I've never told her to get rid of her things but she came to me one day. She, we have this donation box by our, our front door. And once a month, we just take it over to the donation store and let them sort out the stuff. And um, one day, she came to me and her mom with just this pile of toys. And she said, hey, I'm not playing with these anymore. And I think, I think some other kid would really enjoy playing with these toys. <sighs> now, why, why did she do that? Well, because she's seen us do this over and over and over. Yes, as the minimalist, we still get rid of stuff, right? I haven't got down to the magical perfect number of items. Sometimes I acquire things. They stop adding value to my life, so I let them go. And she's seen us let them go. And when she asked, why are you getting rid of it? I explained, well, we're not getting value from it anymore. It's actually getting in the way, but someone else might be able to get value from it. Now, that's way easier to just go into her room once a month and and take the toys out for her. But I'm not doing her, well, I wouldn't be doing her, I'd be doing her a disservice by not teaching her through the actions. And so, if anything, if you want your kids to have a better understanding of contribution, of letting go, of the tug of consumerism, it's through modeling it yourself. And eventually, you can help them, right? You can set boundaries for sure. 
right? But the reason they have so many toys, they didn't go out and buy them, right? You've let them come into your house. Now, some people gave them to you because gift giving is a love language. It's another lie we've been, we've been sold, right? Literally. Um, and, uh, and so people are heaping gifts upon you, plus we bring stuff in, plus, you know what, it's just easier for me to say yes sometimes. Yes, go ahead and get it. Fine. There's a story in the book where, um, you know, whenever you leave a museum, you have to, what, exit through the gift shop. It's a bit ironic that we have books on the way out of this. Josh, everything we do is steeped in irony. <laughs> everything. If you do happen to pick up a book, please minimize it afterward. The book will show you how to let it go. That's a good like, title for a book, actually. All right, anyway. Uh, you know you have to exit through a gift shop. And so like, every time I'd go to a museum with, with my daughter, she would say, yeah, we, we go in there, and like, there's this consumer frenzy. There's so much stimulation right after a like, really calm, nice art museum. And she'd be running through the, uh, the, the gift shop. Hey, can I, can, can, I, can, I, can I get something? And I'm like, what do you want? I don't know anything. I say, ask me tomorrow. She never asks me tomorrow because it's right there in the moment. And so I can explain delayed, I can explain delayed gra- gratification to her or I can show her what it actually is. Most recently, we, um, we went to the Van Gogh exhibit that was in L.A. It was wonderful. And, of course, at the end, we had to exit through the gift shop. This is my second proud fatherly moment. And as we're exiting, instead of, can I get something, anything, she looked around at all these mugs and mouse pads. Who the hell uses a mouse pad? Um, and, 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 you know, like faux paintings and, and pins and glowing sparkly things with Van Gogh's name on it. And she looks up at me and she goes, do you, do you think Van Gogh would like his art on all of these things? Thanks for your question. Thank you. Appreciate you being here. Thanks, Julia. Howdy. Hello. Hey, what's up, man? Good to meet you guys again. You guys came here in 2017. Yes, indeed. I had the opportunity to get a hug then. Uh (laughs) We'll pass it on to all these people. Yes, okay. As long as you have a negative COVID test or something. (laughs) Definitely. Um, so my name is Jordan. Hey, Jordan. Uh, Jordan. I have four kids. Um, my beautiful wife sitting over there as mm. well. Um, she's a stepmom to all four of them. Mm. Um, I had a question about minimalism and owning a home. Yes. Um, sometimes I hear people, you know, I rented an apartment because it was easier to get rid of everything in my home, sell my house, get out of debt or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife and I have the opportunity to own two homes right now, which is great, great investment. Um, I was just curious about home ownership and minimalism and buying the home, planning to live in it for five years, six years, and then, you know, why people say upgrading. So I was just kind of curious about what your guys' thoughts are on home ownership and minimalism. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're not against owning homes, right? Well, you know, it, it goes back to that question. Like, you have two homes, and you, can, you and your wife can ask yourselves, can we afford this? And if the answer is yes, then by all means, I mean, have a home. I mean, I think that having a mortgage, I mean, Dave Ramsey would say, 
which like I treat him as like the financial, you know, guru. He would probably kill me if he heard me call him a guru. But anyway, uh, you know, he, he would say, hey, look, like, yeah, 30 year mortgage that, you know, or, or, I'm sorry, 15 year mortgage. Um, that, that would be OK to have. Uh, but he really would encourage you to pay that off as soon as possible and, and not uh, accumulate any other debt, especially with a car and then definitely credit cards. And then those payday loans, like definitely don't do that. Which brings me to my point of there are some debts that are better than others. But, like, Josh and I are firm believers on there's no such thing as good debt. Like, who is grateful (laughs) for the debt they have? Now, I do understand there are some people like Mark Zuckerberg who, you know, bought a $50 million house. And he got a 30-year mortgage on it at a really low interest interest rate. He could have paid cash. But he's got $50 million to put into the stock market and gain 7% year over year. So, like, if you're really, really rich, okay, I get it. I mean, but still, I don't look at his debt like it's good debt. So, you know, for me personally, I, I try to have as little debt as possible. But, yeah, I mean, owning a home, um, it, 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 it just begs that question, can I afford it? And I'll tell you, living in L.A., rent is really expensive in L.A. And I have went through this, like, okay, um, can I, like, buy a house out in, like, you know, Altadena or something, like somewhere way out of, you know, way, way out of the city. Um, maybe I could afford that and afford that, that debt payment, but I don't plan on staying there for 15 years. Now, if I was planning on staying there for at least 15 years, I would probably look into trying to buy a home somewhere. So um, I rent, my wife and I rent, because we look at that as really, we're, each month we're paying for this ability to kind of turn our lives around on a dime. So uh, I think it's Derek Severs who he talks about, like, you know, paying for rent rather than uh, paying for a mortgage in his situation is paying for the freedom to do what he wants when he wants. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm doing in L.A. I'm renting. uh, But it would be a much different situation if I was planning on being there long term. I think it really depends on whether or not the house is a a burden or a blessing. Right. And um, I just sold a house. Uh, I owned a house outright back in Dayton, Ohio. Um, which costs about the same price as a parking spot in Los Angeles. <laughs> and um, I, I own this house outright, and I rented it every month, and it was fine. It, it wasn't a big problem, but the, the psychological weight of it, because I knew I wasn't going back to Dayton, at least not anytime soon, the psychological weight of it was, oh, you know what, having renters, being a landlord, not for me. For some people, they're like, yes, I have a, a really good friend. I write about him in the book who's living the American dream. He owns like 25 properties and he is so passionate and he enjoys it. His name's Jamar and he's in Cincinnati. And man, I mean, couldn't be a better situation for him to own a house. For me, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be a landlord. In terms of um, a mortgage, yeah, I'd prefer not to have one, but it's the only a, a debt that I would find acceptable in my own life. By the way, I'm not telling you all not to have debt. Not, you do whatever you want. Uh, uh, you know, we're not policing anyone else's behavior, right? Um, we are handing out certificates, though. <laughs> yeah, some of you aren't going to be allowed to be minimalists. Especially if you own a home. Yeah, and so um, I, think, I think ultimately you have to determine, man, is this, is this really serving me and what I, what I want, serving my outcome, or am I just doing it because of why? Well, we're told what? You should own a home. You should have a 30-year mortgage. There are only two countries in the world where that's the standard. We're one of them. In fact, we now have 40-year mortgages. We have 83-month car loans. 
Well, why are we doing this? We are enslaving our future selves for some temporary pleasure today. And if that's what I'm doing, then, man, I'm probably going to go the other way. One other thing, um, because there are no shoulds, right? There are only coulds. So you could own a home. And people hear me say this, and they're like, well, I should have a mortgage is what society tells me. So obviously society is wrong. So I guess it's I shouldn't have a mortgage or own a home. That's not what I'm saying either, right? There's uh, this great cartoon that I saw. It's a New Yorker cartoon. It was a husband and wife, and they're on a farm. And he looks over, and he has his phone in his hand. He goes, honey. And they're, they're on their farm. It's a beautiful, big farm. And he goes, honey, I think I only like the Instagram part of owning a farm. <laughs> and so if you like only the Instagram part of owning a house, then maybe it makes more sense to rent. Thanks for your question. Thanks. Howdy. What's your name? My name's Eliza. Thanks for being here, you guys. This is awesome. Thanks, uh, Eliza. Yeah, so as some background to my question, I, I think my minimalist journey really started near the beginning of COVID, and I credit COVID and all that time for introspection and, you know, paradigm shifts and everything with being formative in me embracing minimalism. Um, and so it really got me thinking about these life-changing experiences that we have that could be global and universal, something like COVID, or it could be a personal life-changing experience. So my question for um, either or both of you is um, what are some insights that you have on using these life-changing experiences to shape our relationships, whether it's with our, our things, our money, with people, etc.? <laughs> that makes me think of a New Yorker cartoon I saw one time of these two guys. They had, uh, there was like a guy in a chair and he's all tied up. And there's these two robbers and like you can tell they just took everything and like they're, just, they're both carrying the TV and they're on their way out the door. And they look, they're looking back at the guy and the caption said, this is your chance to start over. Don't screw it up. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, so I, I, I kind of wish we all went through a near-death experience every six months. I don't know if you've ever been through one, but I had, I had um, well, the last three years I had, and I wrote about this a bit in the book, but the sort of nadir of my life was as we were writing this book, summer of 2019 especially. Um, I got this, we went down to Brazil and... and um, I got this weird parasite. We were down there to speak, and I got this parasite, and it just wrecked my life. It caused this horrible pain, uh, autoimmune pain. I'd wake up and just hideous, hideous pain every day for over a year. I, I've called it a three-year near-death experience. And while I'm appreciably better now, it's still, you know, still the tail end of it. And so I um, – well, actually, you know what? Let me read a little bit from the book real quick. Because at the very beginning, we, um, we kind of talk about this. And I will say it better than I will. <laughs> Thank you. Return to text. <laughs> All right, this is from the uh, preface of the book. The preface is called Pandemic Preparation. The streets are a rumpant with uniformed men wielding titanic assault rifles. That's the first line in love people use things. A rumpant. You know what, I'm not even going to read that whole thing because there's this whole um, thing about how when we first got into the pandemic, um, how rough it was and how odd it was. And, and um, so you'll have to read that on your own. That's your homework for tonight. 
But here we go. In an emergency, not only must we jettison the junk, but many of us are forced to temporarily deprive ourselves of value-adding non-essentials. If we can do this, we can discover what is truly essential, and then we can evaluate, we can eventually reintroduce the non-essentials slowly in a way that enhances and augments our lives but doesn't clutter them with junk. To complicate matters, essential, ma- essential changes as we change. What was essential five years ago, or even five days ago, may not be essential now. And so we must continually question, adjust, let go. This is especially true during a crisis, where a week feels like a month, a month, a lifetime. Stuck in their homes, people wrestled with the fact that their material possessions mattered less than they originally thought. The truth was all around them. All the things collecting dust, their high school basketball trophies, dusty college textbooks, and broken food processors were never as important as people. Um, Yada, 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 keep going. Aha, here we go. Um, I don't know what the future holds. While I don't know what the future holds, I know we can emerge from this uncertainty with a new normal. One that is predicated on intentionality and community rather than, quote, consumer confidence. To get there, we must simplify again. We must clear the clutter to find the path forward. We must find a deeper understanding beyond the horizon. In the thick of the coronavirus crisis, I had a conversation with one of my personal mentors, a businessman named Carl Widener, who showed me the characters for the Chinese word for crisis, Wei Ji, which signify danger, Wei, and opportunity, Ji, respectively. While there are arguments among linguists as to whether the character for Ji actually means opportunity, the analogy is still apt. A crisis, a crisis exists at the intersection of danger and opportunity. In time, there will undoubtedly be more crises. In fact, you can guarantee it, right? That's why I say that every six months it'd be great if we had a near-death experience because we're going to start questioning. We're going to stop being so apathetic. The problem, the reason we're so busy is because we have so much time. Or we think we do. Yeah, thanks. Um, return to the text. Uh, even now, as I write this, a heightened sense of danger lingers in the atmosphere. But opportunity is also in the air. Surrounded by danger, we have a chance to, as my friend Joshua Becker says, use these days to reevaluate everything. Maybe we needed this. Maybe this was our wake-up call. Let us not waste this opportunity to reevaluate everything to let go, to start anew. The best time to simplify was a decade ago. The second best time is right now. Thanks for your question. Yeah. Howdy, what's your name? Hey, I'm Cynthia. Hey, Cynthia. Nice to meet you guys. You as well, what's on your mind? Okay, so when I first heard about you guys, I totally misunderstood your message. That was like four years ago. You can just ask my husband. We had like cupboards, but nothing could be in them. And he was really annoyed by it. And later I kind of, as you guys created more documentaries and more books, it was like, okay, this is about finding what is valuable and having sort of a multitude of those things in your life. 
But I think that as I have gone throughout my life, I try to meet people and do things, and I found it to be kind of, society has almost an aversion to exactly that, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, we want to spend time doing something different than connecting, right? We want to go do an activity, we want to watch a movie, you know what I mean? We want to go out to eat and focus just on the food. But when you start asking meaningful questions to people, they're like, oh, and they give you some joking answer, they don't really want to talk about it, right? Give me an example. Okay, uh, <laughs> you're putting me on the spot here. Okay, let me think. So, what about your child right now is actually making you upset? other than just the fact that they're acting out right now, uh, yeah, right? right? Or what about, right? So when you ask them the deep and meaningful questions and not just the, oh, I don't know, they're just freaking out and it's making me upset. Well, clearly there's something more deep-rooted there and nobody wants to talk about it. Um, so I think that that can create a disconnection. And I think that almost like my generation, they're just always on our phones, we're always distracted. Um, I myself probably watch too much Netflix, um, but when it comes to deep and meaningful connections, I've had a hard time when reaching out to kind of get that back from people. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So um, I guess the question is, when you remove these distractions, your sort of coping skills for your loneliness, and all you have is loneliness now, and you're trying to reach out, how do you do that in a way where people are kind of get where you're coming from and not feel like you're coming from a space of being judgmental or opening up all their deep wounds, but rather just want to have a connection. You know, it's interesting because like what I said at the end of the talk there is, you know, we, we get rid of these things to make room for the, the meaningful things in life. Um, but, but it is hard to figure out like what are, what are we going to replace our pacifiers with? Um, when it comes to meeting people specifically, I mean, living in LA, uh, it's crazy how there are just like so many awesome people to hang out with, and you're like one degree of separation from anyone. I mean, it's 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 just crazy. Um, but long story short, I mean, for me, I well, my my wife will tell you, um, you know, I will make a friend everywhere I go, and the reason being is is because I'm just 100 percent genuine. And some people look at me like I'm nuts. A lot of people look at me like I'm nuts. But some, <laughs> some get it. It's a very lovable crazy, though. Yeah. But some, but some get it, and some can connect with me on that level that you're talking about. So, I mean, if I was to give you, um, you know, like what I would do in, in your shoes, like an answer your question head on, it would be be 100% genuine. When I first moved to L.A., uh, Josh asked me, he's like, how do you like living in L.A. so far? I'm like, dude, I love L.A. I don't think people, I don't think L.A. loves me, though. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, I'll go to get a cup of coffee. And I'm like, hey, I'm Ryan Nicodemus. How are you doing? You know, how's it going? And they just look at me like, can I help you, man? Yeah. Do you need something? Exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah. So you just give me, you know, give me, give me a drip coffee. I'll be on my way. And Josh is like, okay. He's like, well, you, you should, I would recommend you do one of two things. Either turn it down or turn it up. <laughs> So me being the problem-solving guy I am, I turned it up, like, way up. So then I go up, like, hey, how's it going? Uh, can, I get you, can, I, can, I, can I get you something? Yeah, man, I, you can absolutely give me something, give me a cup of coffee, but seriously, are people being nice today? Like, how's, how's today going for you? And, like, all of a sudden, 
I was able to like start pushing through this barrier, especially in Los Angeles that people put up because they're looking at me right away. They're like, okay, what's this guy's angle? Is this guy on drugs? Is he trying to like, you know, scheme me out of something? Because they're so used to, you know, having to look out for those types of things. But the more you can be genuine, the more people will open up and the more that you can push through that barrier that it sounds like you're, you might have trouble uh, pushing through. But, you know, all those things that we don't want to talk about, it's because it's it's easy to cover them up. It's easy to mask things up. And that is what we are acculturated to do as a society. We are acculturated to take the easy route as often as we can. And so those people who are not opening up, um, I, I wouldn't just look at them and say, oh, well, they're taking the easy way out. But I would, you know, A, like have compassion for them. Like, you know what? I get it. Like, I get why they're not answering this deeper question. And and just keep being your genuine self. If if you feel like it's appropriate to ask them the same question again and be like, that is funny, but but seriously, like it, even sharing a personal example, like that's going to help people open up too. But but find a way to push through that wall, and I would recommend turning it up a little bit. You you know, it's funny. The, the book is called Love People Use Things Because the Opposite Never Works. And the only reason we got there is because, well, we tried the opposite for a long time. And that's kind of what Ryan's talking about here is often people approach other people transactionally. We, we don't love people, use things. We, well, we use people and love things. And um, let's, get, let's get real for a minute. Um, the reason that you're struggling with this right now, I know this is going to be really hard to hear, hear but it's, it's the truth. The reason you're struggling with it right now is because you feel like you need these connections. Anytime we feel we need something, we have to have it, that's another type of consumerism. It's consuming relationships. It's not intentional. You're not doing anything wrong. In fact, the doing is always the problem. As you said, like, people want to go out and do these things, and there's nothing wrong with getting things done or whatever. But when it becomes the point of the relationship, you don't do relationships. You don't do love. To love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. And so the reason that we struggle with our relationships, by the way, every relationship in your life will bring you misery. That's a hard one to swallow. Here's the problem, though. It's not actually the other person that's making you miserable. It's your own expectations. Yeah. <laughs> Tweet that podcast, Sean. I heard that in the audience. That's beautiful. Who said that? <laughs> Bravo. Um, yeah. So needing the relate the Ryan the reason Ryan makes a friend everywhere he goes is because he doesn't need to make a friend anywhere he goes. He just he's loving and he approach, approaches the world in a loving way, not needing to change the people because that's self-righteousness, right? We think it's love. We think attachment is love as well. There's something up on our blog right now, um, theminimalists.com. Someone texted us recently and was like, I disagree with you about attachment. It's not actually this. It's really this. And we get really bogged down in definitions and words and, and the intellect, right? But we don't think about what's in our heart. And when we're attached, 
and we stay attached. What is that? That's clinging. We cling to something long enough, we get dragged. My favorite quote from uh, David Foster Wallace is, everything I've ever let go of has claw marks on it. Ooh. That's rough, right? Because that's not letting go at all. That's getting dragged until you can't get dragged anymore. But if you approach the world in a loving way, in a kind way, without needing anything from those relationships, my God, they will just flourish. If you show up and love people, see them, understand them, the how will take care of itself. Thanks. Thank you. Now, Ryan, we're going to, we have a long line here, and I know we're testing the limits of everyone, the size of everyone's bladder here. And, uh, and so I think we probably, well, it's time to move on. Do you what think time is it? Do you think it's time for the lightning round? Let's do it. All right, it is time for the lightning round. Uh, this is where we answer your text messages. So everyone pull out your phones in line. You're going to have to text. I'm kidding. Don't pull out your phones. You can ask them right here. But usually we answer text messages. You can actually text Josh and I. Uh, 937, oh my God. 202-465-4. That's the number right there. <laughs> now, actually, I tell you what. Go ahead, seriously, take out your phones because... What we're doing is we're filming this event tonight, and if you want to get a, well, I don't say a copy of it. It's not a copy, I guess. It's just a link um, of the event. There's two ways to do it. You can either be a Patreon supporter of ours, which shout out to our Patreon supporters in the room. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, our, everyone that works with us is really, really grateful for you as well. So if you're a Patreon supporter, you can get it. Or anyone else who's here tonight, if you text the word... Jazz <laughs> to nine three seven two zero two four six five four. I'll give you that number one more time at the end of the event. Just text the word jazz nine three seven two zero two four six five four. And as soon as we get back to LA and we start editing all this stuff, we'll eventually send that to you. Also, oh by the way, we'll also every Monday we'll send you a Monday morning minimal maximum. We'll obviously never send you spam or junk or advertisements or anything like that. We start your week off with a little bit of simplicity, uh, just a little something pithy to start the week out with. Ryan, you got some pithy answers with you? Uh, I brought a couple, yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> Howdy, what's your name? My name is Justin. Hey, Justin. Justin, what's on your mind? Uh, first of all, I wanted to say, Ryan, I'm glad that you moved to L.A. and not to New York. That transition might have been a little harder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's one interesting thing about L.A. compared to New York. I could be walking down like suns the Sunset Strip on a Saturday night, which is like the, you know, the busiest night in L.A., and I may just have an entire block of sidewalk to myself on the busiest night. Where in New York, if you're on the sidewalk and you have a whole block to yourself, you, something's wrong. Like, you're either in the wrong neighborhood, or, like, there's caution tape somewhere that was blocking that off. Anyway, so I'm with you, man. I'm really, yeah, I'm glad I moved to L.A. too, not New York. It's a nice transitional area to live in. Yeah. Um, I'd have to say, typically at one of your live presentations, you guys go through about six people, so I thought statistically there was a chance that I didn't get up here, but fair enough, we're here. Um, I have to say, Joshua, I share your sentiments. John Stockton is the best player that's ever played for the Utah Jazz. <laughs> Wait, for the, for the NBA. I would agree with that as well. 100%. Uh, 
Um, I was going to say, let's kick off the lightning round, but you guys were ahead. You guys were already on top of it, right. and your wonderful fan back there knows all of the lines already. All right. So my question for you is trying to process the ability to, as we age, we get older, our ability to make money, but also as a byproduct, consume, they come in conjunction with a pithy answer and... No, we don't get to filter it out. You got to be concise from the get-go. Wait, who makes the rules around here? <laughs> All right, for the uninformed, what we try to do during a lightning round is give short, shareable, less than 140 character answers that podcast Sean tweezes out. He puts in the show notes that whenever we do like a regular podcast. So we'll try to make something tweetable for you. What's the actual question? Yeah. Append it with a question mark. All right. The question is, as we continue to be able to gain access to funds and therefore consume, how would we define somebody successfully navigating the waters of consuming appropriately in life? <laughs> he, he has to think his... Because really, it's talking about Joshua yeah, here's, here's being a, concise. Here's a pithy answer for you, and then I'll expand on it. Um, so, so, success does not exist. And, and so that's a construct, right? We've been sold this thing. Because, by the way, think of a successful person, right? What do they have? Name something. Throw out something. What do they... No, yeah, what? A Rolls Royce, I heard that. Uh, show me a picture of a successful person. What does it look like? Rolls Royce, what I hear? Homes. Homes, plural. Yeah, yeah, vacation home, regular home, home in Aspen. What, what is it? Family. Okay, yeah, they might be surrounded by a family that subordinates to, to generally him, right? What's that? A private jet. Yes, yes, yes. Now we're thinking bigger. What's that? Yeah, they wake up and try every day. They hustle, right? And then they're working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, chasing, 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 striving. And then what happens? Well, then all of the costs, they start to pile up. The anxiety, the discontent, the burnout, the suicidal ideation. Yeah, these are real things. And so success doesn't actually exist unless you decide to redefine it. But the way that we define success as a society, society's rotten. We all know this. Um, now, the way that we define it is through metrics. And now there are new metrics as well. You can see uh, people who are young, we just hired three Gen Zers, and um, they talk in follower count. It's a very strange thing. And views. Um, My sister asked me the other day, she's like, Man, I don't even know, 50,000, I don't know, 60,000. You have like this many Instagram followers. Do you feel cool? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the thing, right? Because well, what are we doing? We're setting up an expectation. As soon as we meet that, we'll give ourselves permission to be happy. What does that mean? We'll give ourselves to uncover the happiness that's already there. Well, fuck that. Let's just bypass that step and be happy. <laughs> Oh, you know, it is interesting because with, uh, with these lightning round answers, we usually have, you know, like a week to come up with an answer. And it is a little bit more challenging on the spot. 
But I would say something, uh, like to hit your question head on, is um, it doesn't matter how you spend your money. What matters is how you spend your time. That's pithy. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Howdy. What's your name? Hi, guys. My name is Glenn. Hey, Glenn. Um, it's great to see you guys up close. I had to look twice to make sure Ryan had a... Uh, wasn't barefoot. <laughs> he is wearing shoes. Yeah, for sure. My feet sweat so much. And in these, like, they're just nice and breezy and can't really wear them in the wintertime. Anyway, what's your question, That's man? Great. <laughs> Um, I've, I've used your guys' advice in the past, um, and it's, it's helped me to get over um, and let go of bad relationships. Um, but this time, I'm coming to you needing help getting, uh, well, letting go of a good one that I, did, I didn't necessarily want to end. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, so you've had a relationship. Did it end recently? Yeah. Yeah. How, how recent? Uh, about a month ago. Man. And this person broke up with you? Yeah. 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 Man. Ryan, you've been broken up with a lot. Oh. <laughs> Dude, it actually it made me think of this. I have. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's funny. Thank you for laughing at my expense. That's now, what a good best friend does. Oh, man. You know, yeah. I had this. It was like the summer of 2013, Missoula, Montana. I was like, I don't know, 32 years old. It was like, I didn't have the best summer of my life until I was in my 30s. It was unbelievable. And there was this girl I was dating, um, and I was just like head over heels. And um, it lasted about a week. <laughs> Turns out she was, you know, just a man eater, you know. You know that song? It was written about her. Anyway. Um, and it broke my freaking heart. But, you know, I, I'll try to think of something pithy here. But, you know, I really, that, like, even though it was just like a week, Every single day of that week, we were we were doing something, we were hanging out. I don't, yeah, it, it just it just uh, ended pretty abruptly. But I was able to look at that time and appreciate just the opportunity because I I would have rather have had that week than nothing at all. Like if you were to come to me at the beginning of the week and be like, "Dude, you're gonna have the best week of your life," um, but then then she's gonna break up with you, I'd be like, "Bring it on, let's do it." <laughs> So there, there is something with the, able to have the gratitude for the time I did have. And I learned a lot from that relationship as well. So uh, just carrying that lesson to with, with me into the future helped me to avoid some similar pains and situations. And I'll continue thinking of something pithy as Josh answers. <laughs> I have something pithy for you, but then we'll talk about it. First off, I'm sorry, man. Um, I know... I know what grieving is like. In fact, there's a great book called Grieving is Loving by Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. She's going to be with us in two days in, in Phoenix. And um, that's where I would start if you're looking for, if you're looking to better understand your grieving and why suppressing it doesn't help. In fact, it does the opposite. That's where I'd start. There's also a wonderful book called uh, The Way to Love by Anthony DeMello. Um, here's my pithy answer for you, though. To let go is to love. Now, letting go involves what? Well, it's not something you do. Letting go is something you stop doing. You stop clinging. Now, when Ryan and I are talking about letting go, it's usually in the, the context of your material possessions, right? And so we're clinging to these things, and, and the moment I let go of it, I actually don't do anything. 
I just stop clinging. Now, in terms of a relationship, it's a little bit different, right? Because there isn't a physical thing to cling to. But don't we cling to people? We cling to toxic relationships. We cling to the way we wish things were. But that's not love. That's attachment. That's not good or bad. So I'm not saying one, one might be preferable to you, but it's much harder to stop holding on because we've been programmed for so long that to love someone is to try to change them to need them. Every love song talks about how much I need you in my life, baby. That's not love. That's clinging. And so the reason that it hurts so much is because, well, we had a particular expectation. Ryan had an expectation when he went into that relationship. And if his expectation would have been like, hey, this is over in a week, it would have probably actually been more fun. Yeah, you're right. I would have like soaked it in more. We have a really good friend. Ryan got his packing party idea from our friend Colin Wright. And because um, well, Colin, he was living with his girlfriend for about a year or two. And they were in Seattle. And they decided, hey, we want to go down different paths now. Sort of mutually decided. And so together they had a breakup party. And they scheduled it a month in advance. And they, he said that was the best month of their relationship because they knew that, wow, this thing is almost over. But it's all almost over, y'all. You think you have so much time. It's, it's ending right now. Every moment is ending. And we don't enjoy any of them because we're staring in that rearview mirror or we're looking off staring at some hypothetical horizon in a distant future that I hope happens one day. Well, that hope is going to hurt you. I'm not telling you not to have hope. But when we're really here in the moment, there's no need for it. There's no need for an expectation of the future. We can enjoy this right now. We can enjoy the person we're with right now. He had that breakup party, and at midnight they... They switched their Facebook statuses to single. (laughs) And they moved on. And for a long time, he spent the next several years traveling to a new country every four months. And he didn't even pick the country. His readers on his blog voted where he went next. So he'd go to Argentina or India or Iceland or wherever else in the world he was. He ended up in Wichita once. (laughs) Yeah, and um, he was only there for four months at a time. And every relationship he had was meaningful, intimate or otherwise, because there was an expiration date on it. Spoiler alert, there's an expiration date on all of your relationships. And if we start realizing that, then maybe we can actually love the people who are in front of us instead of expecting something out of them. That's a little bit longer than 140 characters. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, you can clap for that. Thanks. Yeah, that was, man, when I had that realization of like, like truly viscerally felt, uh, how long have humans been around? And like, none of us make it out of here alive. (laughs) And like, it was the most joyous sadness I've ever had in my life. (laughs) 
because it helped me appreciate the moments that, that I do have. And, and it was Glenn, right? Glenn, the, here's the pithy answer I'll give to you is uh, the person's love you need the most is your own. That's good. Yeah, thanks for that question. Hi. Hello, my name is Shannon. Hey, Shannon. Uh, I'm a transplant to Utah. So uh, one of the things that's maybe not unique about Utah but uh, is big here is emergency preparedness. And uh, pantries, basements, Buckets full of... Food. of Yes, mm-hmm. just in cases, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. being ready. And uh, so with, when COVID happened, just the you know, toilet paper situation made me think that <laughs> was sort of important after all. So, um, But if I look at the area where we're trying to prepare for emergencies, it doesn't look very minimalist. So how do you balance preparing for possible emergencies in the future with... Uh, what you actually need. Yeah. In the book, we have uh, three different rules that sort of work in conjunction with each other. By the way, anytime we say rules, they're not actual rules. People are looking for rules, and so we, we call them that. But they're really just boundaries, and they're adjustable boundaries that work for you, and it's going to be different for me and different for Ryan. Uh, the first one is the just-in-case rule, right? Just-in-case. Three most dangerous words in the English language. We use those words to justify everything. I had thousands of just-in-case items, junk drawers full, closets, basements. Oh, yeah, hold on to that magazine subscription of Esquire from uh, 2004, just-in-case. I don't know, just-in-case what? <laughs> hold on to the broken waffle iron, just-in-case. And it's, it seems like, oh, yeah, 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 okay, that makes sense, oh, yeah, just-in-case, I guess I'll hold on to it. Well, Ryan and I have determined, like, anything we're holding on to just-in-case we can get rid of for... Less than $20 and less than 20 minutes from wherever we are. Now, that sounds like an incredible rule of privilege. Oh, my God. Why would you want to spend $20 every day replacing a just-in-case item? Well, we've been doing this for a dozen years now, and we've had to use that rule five times between the two of us. So that's 100 bucks over a decade. And that gave us permission to let go of tens of thousands of just-in-case items we're getting in the way. Second rule is the just-for-win rule. So some items we buy just for win. I don't buy my toilet paper one square at a time, right? I don't buy my toothpaste one nurdle at a time. Yeah, that's what they call the little thing on the toothbrush. That's a nurdle. And um, the reason I don't is I buy enough just for when I need it. So those are sort of like just the case items, but they're usually consumables or other things that I know I'm going to use over the course of some period of time, and I have enough room to keep those things. So I buy a pack of toilet paper or I buy a pack of paper towels, whatever it might be, right? And the third rule is the emergency item rule. And so I think this is really what fits what you're talking about. Emergency items are just-in-case items that you hope you'll never have to use. And so um, now we can justify just about anything, so we have to be careful with this rule. But I'll give you a few examples of, of emergency items that I have. So and if you want a, a long answer, we did a whole emergency items podcast episode. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. We really dive deep into our own personal emergency items. But jumper cables for your car, for example, right? Or when we lived in Montana, chains for our tires, right? Now, when I moved to L.A., I no longer needed the chains for my tires, so I let those emergency items go. So identifying what is appropriate for me, not societally appropriate, what everyone else expects, 
And then also realizing that most emergencies aren't. That's pithy. Yeah. That is totally the one that I was going to use. Ah! Stole it from me. Oh, man. Yeah, uh, I, have, I have like a, yeah, I got a go bag, like, you know, in case there's earthquakes in California. So, you know, when inevitably that big earthquake hits, like, we're going to have to do something. We have a plan. If we're, if my wife and I are separate, we have three different places to meet if, you know, we can't get a hold of each other on the phone. So we have these, you know, just for when or just for emergency um, plans. But, yeah, uh, I mean, I guess the pithy answer would be it doesn't matter how many buckets of food you have, you can't prepare for every emergency. And, and, I, and I think that's the problem with the prepping attitude is we're like, well, okay, we'll have six months worth of food and like I'll have a generator and I'll have, and, and maybe those things are appropriate, you know, at certain, in certain houses, but like in my apartment, I can't have a generator. I don't have room for buckets of food. Um, have you but, seen the Jim Baker one? You can oh like turn it goodness. into your like co- coffee table, just buckets <laughs> of food. You can stack them up and use them as a couch. <laughs> I have not seen. I have to look it up. Oh, it's awful. Oh my goodness. But but yeah. I mean, uh, the thing is, is like if you know that prepper mentality. If like you know, if, if society falls apart, um, it does. You could have six months worth of food. Like you're eventually going to run out of food if like society gets to the point where like uh, these like you know prep like the really deep preppers, if it gets to that point. So oh, here's a good one. Um, I would say, hmm. Uh, uh, Josh, help me, help me, help me refine this. This is what Josh. I have. I'll find like a lump of gold, and I'm like, "Hey, Josh, make it into that bar shape that you always do." <laughs> help me spit some bars, Josh. I usually just add a comma. <laughs> it's true. Um, so, uh, community matters more than your 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 prepper items. Here you go. Here you go. Yeah. You, you, you can't tra- you can't trade canned corn and ammunition for the love and support of a community. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, man. <laughs> Teamwork. Yeah. Howdy. What's your name? Hi. I'm going to have to extremely shorten my comments. I have too many. Uh, Savannah. <laughs> hey, Savannah. Hey, Savannah. Insane. Pandemic preparation. You talked about a sign hung in a grocery store that said, well, next to all these empty shelves, and it said, all, like, signed to all these toilet paper hoarders who will starve in their homes surrounded by buckets of toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> my, my neighbor was an ex-prepper. And my favorite thing, you could almost tweet this, mm. is he said, and now all of that stored food all those years is just dried pellets I feed to my chickens. Mm. <laughs> you know, the toilet paper thing was really funny, like, right? Like, is that really the emergency item that I needed? There's a, there's a sink and a bathtub right there if I run out. It's going to be okay, y'all. I had too many jump outs. I was going to say spill bleach on half your wardrobe. I was going to talk about Ella sitting to dinner and eating broccoli and saying, can I donate this? (laughs) This broccoli brings me no joy at all. (laughs) Yeah, that's a a, a verbatim quote. Ella has a great Twitter account, actually. Um, We don't let her use it. But um, she says crazy, crazy things, and then we tweet them. Today it was... uh, there are way too many boys in this world. <laughs> and then she immediately followed up with, don't tweet that. <laughs> Which is actually part of the tweet. She's at Ella Sandwich if you want to follow her. I love how like, he'll tell her, like, hey, Ella, you have this many followers. And she just looks at him like, Josh, I don't believe you. 
<laughs> All right, what's your question? So the real question is, um, kind of context, like I've gone through multiple years of decluttering. I am one week away from finishing the year-long 100-thing challenge. Wow. I was going to originally ask, how do you fill the silence once the void of all the pacifiers is gone? But you did answer that. I guess I liked the earlier question about how do you let go of a good relationship? I guess I could ask, um, I've heard a lot in your book about how you've talked about how you were raised a Jehovah's Witness and you kind of had ups and downs back and forth with your dad. I just had my parents get divorced last year and it's been crazy up and downs and it kind of was more on the part of my dad. There was definitely more on his side. It's like, how do you, how do you show that person you love them and keep that relationship, but also keep your distance because what they're doing can be toxic at times. For, for the uninformed, Jehovah's Witnesses are like Mormons with a bad conversion rate. <laughs> that is very accurate. <laughs> oh, man. Um, you know, it's interesting, like with my parents, I was actually, I was just talking uh, to Scott about this backstage and uh, Nate about how it just has taken me the last couple years to realize I was having this thought, and I was thinking about all the way my parents should be. You know, my mom should do this, and why would she do that, and why would she put me in this situation? And, and you both had that, too. You almost yeah. had that way to relate to each other. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. We both, yeah, were very much uh, raised in alcoholic homes. Um, dysfunctional. Dysfunctional, yeah. Before the term dysfunctional was cool. <laughs> so it's, it, it, I had this realization where I was like, I'm going through all these shoulds with my mom and dad, and I'm like, I just realized, I'm like, wait a minute, like I'm, th- I was like 37, 38 at the time, and I'm like, I don't have, I don't have, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like, I know it looks like I know what I'm doing, but I really don't. Like, I, I have some things figured out, but there's a lot that I don't have figured out. And I'm 37. They had me at 20 and 22. So, like, why would I expect them to have it figured out at 22 years old? And it helped me to have a little bit of compassion for my parents. So I think when it comes to your parents, you can never go wrong by showing compassion, but sometimes you do have to love people from a distance. Yeah, I I think you have to, if you want to love them, you have to let go of, you have to grieve the relationship you wish you had. Because um, that's just another expectation, right? And, and if we can let go of that expectation, then we can love the person for who they are. And yeah, Ryan's right. Sometimes that requires loving them from a distance because it's a toxic relationship. And sometimes a toxic relationship, there's a section in the book called Letting Go of Toxic Relationships. And we talk about when a relationship's toxic, but sometimes it's toxic because of A, I'm the toxic person, or B, it's like when you mix two chemicals together, they're fine on their own, but you put them together and it causes some explosion. That's often how relationships are. Thanks for your question. Thank, Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, we've got two more. Even though we're way over on time, we'll, we're, we'll do our best to make this work. Mine's quick. So, right. my name's Alex. Hey, Alex. Um, hey, Alex. I was introduced to you guys by my wife, uh, the hoarding episode was really illuminating in uh, mm. some of our family uh, dynamics. 
Not mine and my wife, but the one where we were talking about the, the different you know? stages of hoarding. Yes, yeah. and the different types of hoarding. So mm, yeah. that was really helpful. But it was my first introduction to you guys. Awesome. Um, you to, like immediately cleared out the dead cats yeah, in the freezer. Exactly. Yeah, it was, it was Dude, good times. Yeah. Well, Josh was going over those levels. I'm like, I think I used to be like a level three hoarder. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So my question is, so so my wife is definitely the one that's like pursued. She's like borderline Spartanist. We've kind of, mm. she's self-diagnosed. Um, but living with that, and I don't know how your, how your spouse is adopted or adapted to living with, you know, your minimalist lifestyle. So, and I know you don't give advice, but if your advice was, um, what would you say to yourself as, as a, would-be spouse of your, I don't know how to say it. Your What's your wife's name? Stacy. She's right over there. Hey, Stacy. Where you at? <laughs> hey, Stacy. Stacy the Spartanist. <laughs> um, Has a nice ring to it. For those of you uninformed, so hoarding and Spartanist are on the same sort of continuum. It's a, um, I have OCD. I was diagnosed with OCD. Um, and, and, and so obsessive compulsive disorder often leads, it manifests into our things. So, so, Hoarders can't let go of anything. And, and so the people you see on TV, like we like to sort of sneer and point at them. Oh, ha, 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 look at them. I, I'm okay because I don't live like them. There's no feces on my floor, right? <laughs> and it's like, okay, I get it. But like they didn't get there overnight either. But most of us are hoarders. In fact, virtually all of us are at least stage one hoarders. And most of us are stage two, or Ryan's in my case, we even had a, checked a few boxes for stage three hoarding. And hoarders, or consumers, if it makes you feel better, right? Uh, we, we have trouble letting go of, of things because of the stories we tell ourselves, right? Spartanists have trouble holding on to anything. And that usually devolves into, oh, I can't even keep a job. I can't keep a relationship, a friend, right? And they're constantly letting go because they have an inability to, to hold on. And so it's kind of like playing on the monkey bars. When Ella plays on the monkey bars, if she has to let go of one bar to move on to the next one, right? So holding on to, being able to hold on to things moves us forward. But being able to let go also moves us forward. It's a weird sort of decorous dance that, that we have with our stuff. The problem is we're all so far on the other end that we think the answer is what? You know, I tried to buy all this stuff. Why? Well, it's going to make me happy. Uh, it didn't make me happy. You know what will? Buying more stuff. <laughs> that didn't work. You know what will make me happy? Better stuff. Well, that didn't work either. What about more better stuff? Yeah, you get it. Eventually, you get to a point where you're like, ah, that didn't work. You know what'll make me happy? Getting rid of the stuff. <laughs> so you get rid of the stuff. Oh, crap, that didn't make me happy either. Hmm. You know what the problem is? Before, I didn't have the right stuff. Yeah, it's got to be higher quality. Fewer, but better. Right, and so I get the right things, that'll make me happy. Oh, well, that didn't work either, because I tried it. I had all the right things. Oh, what was wrong? Well, I wanted to let go of it then, right? 
Well, the letting go doesn't make us happy. In fact, it can leave us feeling empty as well. Letting go simply makes the room so we can identify what's important to us. And so letting go is never the point. If it becomes the point of doing what you're doing, then we treat minimalism as a destination. That's just a vehicle that we use to get wherever we're going. You get to determine where you're going. But don't treat it like the destination because, well, it's only going to get you wherever you want to be. Thanks for your question. Thank you. Yeah. If I had to, like, make that a pithy answer, I would say... uh, Uh, deprivation is depressing hoarding is hell but balance is beautiful (laughs) nice howdy hello we Uh, saved the best for last what's your name I'm Hetty it rhymes with spaghetti Hetty like spaghetti yeah (laughs) nice to meet you nice to meet you Hetty spaghetti thanks okay um but first, I just want to say thanks for being here. Um, I appreciate you guys being here, and I'm grateful that I get the chance to be here live because in person's always better. Um, but yeah, so my uh, I guess I'll start off by saying I listened to your shopping addi- addiction podcast. That just came out today. Yeah, I'm nice. like a good little Asian student. I like get right on it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you know. So it like really resonated and I am definitely guilty of trying to seek like that thing just around the bend that'll make me feel whole or complete or make me cooler or a better person or something. Um, And I have been trying to kind of like create an understanding behind this the last couple of years. And I understand that ultimately it boils down to why. And within that why, it kind of stems into two different things. Understanding the why of, okay, why do I do this? And creating an understanding of your habits. And then the other side of that is, um, I suppose, creating an awareness as to why you want to change it and what you want to gain from changing that. And I understand that there's those two things and I've tried to you know, work on both of them. I'm sure there's a lot more I can do, but I guess I'm just feeling stuck and I feel like I might be missing like this light bulb moment or the flick of a switch where it's like, okay, so now I can finally become an intentional, minimal person. And I'm like wondering if that's just the wrong way to go about it. Is it, I guess my question is, is, is it something that has a moment or is it something that gains momentum like a snowball? Well, clearly it's the wrong way for you because you haven't gotten where you want to go, right? Yeah. Um, and then I guess the other option is maybe it's not even something that you like attain or get there it's not a destination but it's more so like and do I need to is it that I need to cultivate a completely different mindset and like practice consistency in that and that through that it becomes a snowball effect sorry I don't know if that's like a clear question no you've been programmed with a lot of words Mm. well you know like the pithy answer that comes to my mind is is like you cannot think your way out of chaos yeah Yeah, that's good (laughs) 
You cannot think your way out of chaos. Like the only way, the only way to to get the desire that you're talking about is to develop that desire. If you're gonna, if you're waiting around for that desire to just hit you one day, you'll be waiting your whole life. I heard the words practice and try and do, and. I hear a lot of sort of, I hear the gears in your head. They're turning. And, and you're trying to figure out this sort of equation, right? But this isn't math. It's poetry. And, and so here's something pithy for you, but let's talk about this for a bit because we're all here right now. We can, we can talk about it because this is a problem that everyone struggles with, right? And you're much farther along than most people. You're getting stuck, though, because you're tripping over your brain. And so um, here's the pithy thing. Because I heard about the trying, the practice, and, and the, the doing. Doing less isn't about the doing. It's about the less. And so, Eddie, you're already there. You're trying to get somewhere where you already are. And so, happiness doesn't come from addition. It always is found from subtraction, Right? Now, I'm not talking about the things. That can be part of it, right? But just getting rid of the things isn't going to make you happier, right? But maybe it, maybe it clears the space to realize, like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know what? I don't have to do those things that I've been programmed to do, right? You've, by the way, you've been programmed your whole life to, well, yeah, I heard the word practice in there, right? Well, think of, when do we practice, like who, who, who generally practices? Well, when you think of a person practicing, what are they doing? Sports, yeah. They're dribbling a basketball or throwing a football or hitting a tennis ball or whatever, right? Elite athletes don't practice, though. The most elite athletes, they simply, they understand. They know what compels them. And so what is the problem? Why are you seeking through... Why are you seeking happiness through things or achievements or whatever else? Is because something more compelling hasn't been put in front of you yet. But as soon as you put something more compelling than the stuff, than the acquiring, than the achieving, as soon as you have something more compelling in front of you, all the other stuff will take care of itself. The how-to, the practice, the commitment. These are all nonsense words that were, were sold by sort of self-help people who don't know any better. They've also been programmed. So it's not their fault. It's not even your fault. You've been programmed by a culture that encourages you to practice and do more and get things done. But everyone getting everything done is miserable. And so, yeah, get all the things done and see what kind of misery it brings you. What flavor of misery do you want? Or you can let go. And you can put something in front of you that you're enthused by, that you're thrilled by, something that makes you feel so alive. And if you put that in front of you, you don't need commitment. I'm not committed to my wife. What does that mean? I have to get up every day. I can't believe I have to be in this relationship just one more day. (laughs) I'm going to get through today, one day at a time. No. I'm not committed to writing. I do it because I'm compelled to do it. Here's a question for you. What's the thing you can't not do? If you can find that, everything else will seem so trivial you won't want to do it anyway. I 
Awesome. Thanks, Eddie. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm going to give you that phone number again if you would like a recording of this event. You can either support us on Patreon. It keeps our podcast 100% advertisement free. Um, or you can send us a text message. Text JAZZ to 937-202-4654. Before we wrap up, I just want to thank a few people here. Uh, Podcast Sean and Jordan for filming and, and the audio here tonight. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Can we thank Wise Guys for having us here tonight? Yeah. I want to say something about Nate and Scott real quick. I already mentioned, you know, Nate is basically the reason you have an outstanding music scene here. And um, he's not the singular reason, but he's sort of the, the guy who connects all of, all of the dots. And he is a, a savant with music. And then Scott, who is up here playing with him as well, I mean... He's just simply one of my favorite songwriters. He has, um, he has a, a band, a project called Book on Tapeworm, and it's one of the, some of the best songs you'll ever hear. It uh, came out in 2016. All the World's a Stage is the album, and it's just every line is so intentional. And we, we came here to make the soundtrack to both of our films because we wanted some of that magic in our film. And I can tell you, neither one of those films would be nearly as compelling without their contributions. So let's thank, thank them for being here tonight. Yeah. Ryan, I can't believe we get to do this, man. I know, dude. This is great. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. <sighs> thank you all. Finally, I want to thank you. Yeah, thank you for being here because... Yeah, you spent some money to get here, and that's great because it pays for our travel and it pays for the haunted hotel that we're staying in tonight. And, um, you know, I'm just going to be outside your room tonight, like, just making noises. Boo! <laughs> uh, put your pants on. Um, wow. You spent some money to come in tonight, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that because it does help with our travel and, and everything else, but you gave up two far more precious resources tonight. You gave up your time and your attention. I'm really grateful for that. Thank you so much for that. Give yourselves a round of applause. Look, I don't know where you are in your life right now. I don't know where you're going. But if you leave here tonight with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for being here, y'all. Thank you, Salt Lake City. Yeah. Don Minimalists. <laughs>